Welcome to Ventricles, a podcast of the science, religion, and culture program at Harvard Divinity School. My name is Shireen Hamza. In this episode, I sit down with Shigehisa Kuriyama, a professor of the history of science and East Asian languages and civilizations at Harvard University, to think about the history of medicine. Why exactly does medicine have a history? Or why has the body been understood so differently in different contexts if humans have had the same anatomy for thousands of years? You might think that's easy. We know more about the body now. We have new technologies and we do it better than ever before. But there's more to this question than that. Medicine has a culture, a local culture, even today, that shapes its outcomes. Even the culture of modern medicine varies greatly from place to place. Determining, for example, when patients feel the need to see a doctor, how physicians and patients expect an appointment to go, what the best treatment choices for the patient are, and who should make those choices. All of this varies as much in different places as it has over time, and is not only dependent on what knowledge and technologies are available. As we'll discuss, even the experience of a disease can be dependent on its history and culture. But before we listen to Professor Kuriyama's take on some major puzzles in the history of medicine, let's start with an ancient story you may have heard before. Six blind men heard that a wondrous animal, called an elephant, had been brought to town. They were curious and decided they must investigate the truth of the matter by touch. So they sought it out, and when they found it, each man felt the elephant with his hands. The first person, whose hand landed on the trunk, said, The elephant is like a thick snake. The second, whose hand found its ear, said, It seemed like a kind of fan. The third, whose hand fell upon its leg, said, The elephant is a pillar, like a tree trunk. The fourth, who placed his hand upon its side, said, The elephant is like a smooth wall. The fifth, who felt its tail, described the elephant as a rope. And the final man, who felt its tusk, was sure that the elephant is hard, smooth, and sharp, like a spear. The story ends differently in different tellings, usually with the men fighting, and it has been interpreted differently over the centuries in Buddhist, Hindu, and Jain philosophical traditions. One thing that comes to mind for me is that the author of the story clearly didn't have a lot of blind friends. But Professor Kuriyama finds a lesson for historians, too. Why is there a history to medicine? It's the same human body everywhere in antiquity as in the present, yet sort of approaches to the body, theories of the body, um, practice of the body are so different. The metaphor that with which I've been approaching this problem for a long time is that of the blind men and the elephant. Right. Different blind men have have different access to different parts of, of that elephant, and so their experience of the elephant is very different. And they're all feeling something that's real in some way, but yet when they compare notes, they have totally uh, incompatible or incongruous sort of, sort of experiences of that elephant. But one of the uh, ways in which I've been sort of elaborating that in recent times is, is using Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics where um, in this great book, he emphasizes how comics is really the, the art of closure. It draws on the possibility of human minds to make closure 
where you take a, you have a fragment and then you extrapolate the whole. In fact, you're not even aware that you're doing this. So you look at a, you know, a circle and a couple of dots and you see a face and you almost can't help but see a face. Um, and I think we do this all the time where you're, you have access to only really a fragment of reality, but you immediately fill in the rest as if you, you had access to the whole. I think in order to understand the history of medicine and the, this fundamental problem that I just described, thinking about closure is a very useful and important approach. It's always hard to remember how easily we fill in the gaps. You know, so in order to do, I think, history, one has to, in some sense, train oneself to realize that there are so many blind spots that we're not aware of. Experience of, say, cutting your finger could hold so many meanings that it doesn't for us now. And if you're reading a text about that experience, letting yourself find it unfamiliar, letting yourself find it strange. You don't know what you don't know, right? I think that's the, the greatest challenge is un until somebody points something out to you or you know, literally has a different perspective and alerts you to the existence of things that you don't see, then you don't realize that you're not seeing it. But I think Scott McCloud's book is, is also interesting with respect to his discussion of realism and sort of iconicity. Our conception of the body are very much shaped by Renaissance and post-Renaissance depictions of the body, which are realistic in the etymological sense of depicting the body as a thing. By etymology, Professor Kuriyama is referring to the root of the word real, which is res, meaning thing in Latin. Real used to mean pertaining to things. These realistic things, the realistic depictions, present the body as an object to be looked at. Uh, and so they're very effective in giving you a sense of the actual appearance of, of the body. Whereas the assumption, I think, in, in Chinese depictions is that the body is not necessarily just an object to be looked at, but it, in fact, it's you. And so it's an experience of the body, uh, representing the body as it's experienced or could be experienced. Mm. And also the assumption is that you have to fill it in. Um, so it's very, it is very much that kind of comic representation in which there's no pretense or aspiration to represent the thing as an object. But in the same way that Charlie Brown type of face is perfectly good enough to give you a sense of a face. And often it's pretty express, remarkably expressive of emotions despite their simplicity. In his book, Understanding Comics, Scott McCloud draws himself, the narrator, very simply, with opaque eyeglasses and just a line for a mouth. In one panel, he explains that he does this to enable the reader to connect with this abstract representation of a person, which could be almost any person. By contrast, when he draws himself in incredible detail, he looks like a specific person, whom the reader may be distracted by or may not see herself in. There's a very interesting, maybe dialectical relationship between the possibility of realistic representation and sort of the objective sort of gaze of anatomy that uh, in some sense, the realistic uh, depictions are reflective of 
the anatomical gaze, which looks at the body as an object. But at the same time, they encourage that, that possibility of realism encourages a certain way of looking at the body, which is as something uh, that's separate from you, as mm. a thing. Mm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Project actually brought this up when I was speaking to him, that there really until the 18th century, no Ayurvedic physician draws anatomical models. Listeners may remember this story from episode three, in which Professor Projit Mukherjee discusses the pulse in Ayurvedic medicine. So why is there not a visual tradition in Ayurveda? And I think it is because of the way Ayurvedic knowledge works, which is so much about what Val Daniels, who worked on Siddha medicine, had called consubjective, which is like not neither subjective nor objective, something in the middle. Uh, if you're the physician, you perceive the patient's body, but your subjectivity and the patient's subjectivity kind of melds. For you to be able to illustrate something, there's a certain amount of distance you need from it. The painter can't be part of the painting himself or herself. I mean, they can imagine and put themselves in, but they have to visualize the image as being outside of them. And I think Ayurveda didn't do that. The fact that you get several synonyms in Sanskrit for everything, uh, and it doesn't lend itself to drawing something, putting an arrow and labeling it. But obviously, physicians must have been imagining some kind of image of a body to treat it. It becomes a little more difficult than, say, in the Islamic or the Chinese tradition to talk about the image of the body because you have to basically read between the lines. I mean, I think it's, it's a question of thinking about what are pictures for? And pictures have different uses and different styles are effective for different kinds of purposes. A detailed, realistic picture is great if, you know, you're the FBI and you want to track down a, a specific person. But for other purposes, the main point is to I, maybe just to show that it's a person, a, a human being, or that he's male or female, or young or old. And the detail doesn't matter. In fact, excessive detail may be, may be an encumbrance. Another way to think about it is if if you wanted to tell people how to go, go from one point of campus and in Harvard to another point, you know, you probably wouldn't want a sort of realistic photographic depictions of all the buildings, right? Uh, first, it's not necessary. And in fact, it's probably more confusing than a simple schematic chart, which will allow you to navigate it much more efficiently. We'll now turn to an interesting question in the history of medicine. Why do we find many of the treatments people used and found effective in the past so strange today? Part of the answer lies in the way we are taught about modernity. The modern period is supposed to be very different from everything that came before. And while this is true in some ways, there are also many things that continue on from the medieval or ancient world, including religious and scientific traditions. Thinking of the modern period as an age of exceptional rationality obscures both the rationality of the pre-modern world as well as the magic, madness, and mysticism of the present. I'll give you an example, which is the history of nightcaps, right? Mm -hmm. And how in researching that, I came across this, I thought, quite interesting you know, uh, situation whereby when somebody had drowned and they were trying to resuscitate somebody who was seen to have drowned, the first thing they did was not artificial, you know, mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, or it was placing a nightcap on the person, right? Mm. That this idea that they would 
do this as the first thing to revive a person. And this is 19th century, right? Not too distant past is indicative first of one, sort of the, the different conception of the body they had, 19th century. And second, the strange structure of the history of Western medicine, which, as you know, I call the, you know, the great forgetting, right? That somehow as most of the history of Western medicine, the, most of the, the past has come to seem very bizarre and illegible almost. How could something that was basically dominant for about 2,000 years or more, right, have come to seem so odd? It's a puzzle. Respect for old knowledge is something many people today do not associate with science. But acknowledgement of the wisdom of ancient authorities is as much a part of the history of Western science as it has been in the history of science in any other region. To try to explain this, I had asked some students which they would trust more, an article published 50 years ago or an article published yesterday. And everyone was like, yesterday. And just being able to say that's just not the case for why Galen is important in the in 18th century. You know, like why is Galen still discussed as an authority today, you know, in Yunani medicine? It's just that people give weight to precedent. People give weight to authority and it being tried and tested. But also they are reconfiguring him as they go. And uh, there's something about it that's flexible enough. Even as they disagree with him, they think on whole he's a swell guy. Yeah, I think there's something really, really important about that story, the great forgetting. Um, and it has to do a little bit with like the need to kind of deny knowledge in the past to confirm modernity. I think one of the things that makes the history of medicine interesting and distinctive from the history of science is the way in which conceptions of disease shape the actual experience of disease. So if we think, for example, about astronomy and the different ways in which people thought of constellations, and you could sort of imagine people sort of configuring the relationship between stars in different ways, but the way in which they rearranged or saw patterns wouldn't change the stars themselves. Whereas the odd thing I think about the history of medicine is that the way in which people think about disease often actually ex shapes their actual experience of diseases. You know, you see many instances of diseases that seem very prevalent in one place or another or one period or another, but which seem enigmatic to people in other times or places. So an example is uh, there is a condition called katakori in Japan, which any Japanese they would know because it's probably the most common complaint, everyday complaint among Japanese. But it's a term which is very difficult to translate. Sometimes it's translated as stiffness in the shoulders, upper back pain, but in fact, there is no really good translation because it, it isn't a, an experience that's particularly recognized elsewhere. You can ask, you know, why do, uh, why do Japanese complain about this? Um, anthropologists are interested in this type of phenomenon and thinking about this in the context of what they call local biologies. And I think their analysis is very interesting, but often neglects uh, the deep history that that underlies these conditions often. So 
it's not simply certain conditions of society or culture at a given time, but these experiences that people have now are, in fact, have a longer history that aren't entirely um, apparent from the current conditions. Mm -hmm. So in the case of katakori, um, basically I think it's a condition that goes back to changes in society that occurred in the late 17th and early 18th century. Um, and once that condition was established, that basically cultural inertia kept it alive to the present, um, except that the meaning of the disease has changed. So in its origins, katakori was a condition that arose from a sense of anxiety about indolence, about sort of a new laziness that had been created by a culture of prosperity and peace, whereas today it's viewed as a condition created by overwork. Tension is a good thing before and a bad thing now. Yeah, yeah, until late 19th century. And this is in the Western context, but uh, the paradox of how tension usually through the 19th century in, in Western context is usually talked about as a good thing and relaxed is almost always means pathology. It's a lack of vitality. In the 20th century, relaxation becomes something to be pursued and tension is associated with stress and hypertension pathologies. Ideas about the body and even the way people have visualized the body have varied immensely over time. This variety in the history of medicine makes one wonder, what will people in 200 or 2,000 years think of our medical practices now? Will they see the incredible therapeutic successes of modern medicine? Will they judge some of these breakthroughs in light of the many dark and violent histories of medical experimentation? Or will they think of us as overconfident, describing the whole elephant after having felt only a part? Listeners, thank you for joining us for this episode of Ventricles, about some big picture questions in the history of medicine. For more, tune in to our next episode about the history of technology in Latin America and what can be gained from studying technology and innovation outside of its stereotypical settings in Euro-America. Please check out the bibliography for this episode online at the Science, Religion, and Culture Program website, src hds.harvard.edu A special thank you for this music to the Overseas Ensemble, a collaboration between composer Paid Blanca and Sarigama, a group of Sri Lankan musicians who came together while working in Beirut.